This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Donahue is a somatic animist, herbalist, poet, witch, and author of this wonderful new book that we'll be talking about. The forest reminds us of who we are, connecting to the living medicine of wild plants. I just love this book. Thank you. So let's begin with explaining what somatic or animistic herbalism is and how you connected with the world of wild plants? So, somatic herbalism is simply an herbalism that involves 
coming to know and trust our own bodies and our own senses and to recognize the ways in which the presence of plants, whether it's the ways in which our senses experience plants when we're around them or whether it's taking plant medicine into our bodies to learn to recognize the subtle and sometimes not so subtle shifts in our own experience of embodiment that plants can bring. And ultimately, plants are beings with biologies not dissimilar from our own. And we are learning more and more how the branching rhizomatic networks of plants that weave together with the mycelium underground operate in ways very similar to our nervous systems and how we know that those island and phloem are very similar to the arteries and veins within our own body and that their bark or, or the surface of a stem or the surface of a leaf is very similar to the tissues that form our skin and the linings of our respiratory tract and the linings of our digestive tract, places where we and they come into contact with the outside world. And their biochemistries are very similar to our own. So we recognize the information that comes in from them as relevant to our own embodiment, but because they live outside our cultural categories and cultural stories, they're able to bypass some of the problems that come up with some of the same kind of information that we get from each other because the information isn't so culturally bound. And to take that a step further, an animist herbalism is simply one that recognizes the life in everything and that plants are fellow conscious beings sharing the world with us and that they are not simply inert materials. They are not simply objects with which we interact. They are living beings with their own consciousness with which we can be in communication just as we're in communication with each other and with animal life and even with earth and air and water and fire. I would also love for you to talk about your early experience being autistic and your awareness of the suffering and injustice in the world and the resulting sense of political responsibility that you felt and how that has affected the way you relate to the world and perhaps even opened up your capacity for awareness and empathy with the plant world and the world beyond what our culture recognizes and believes in. Absolutely. So I didn't know until my 30s that I was autistic, but from... A very early age, I sensed, and everyone around me sensed, that there was something different about how I was interacting with the world. And so from the perspective of neurobiology, what we know of autistic existence is that we have these rapid, nonlinear branchings of our synapses in some ways, very similar to the way mycorrhizal networks of the forest grows. And we also filter less of the sensory information coming in, which includes less of the emotional information.
information coming in. And so we at once are taking in signals that other people might filter out, but also prioritizing them differently than people around us do. And so it leads to a different set of interactions with the world. And one of those is with the way in which we experience empathy, which in many ways is very close to its etymological roots of feeling with. And researchers in empathy are beginning to discover that there are, in fact, two kinds of empathy. There's the kind that is most easily tested and described by the dominant culture, and which is most challenging for autistic people, which is based on facial expressions and body language and tone of voice and social context, guessing the expected response that another usually neurotypical person wants to receive in a situation versus picking up viscerally the emotions of an experience of another being. And one of the big differences between these two kinds of empathy is that with the more cognitive empathy, which is there are the set of rules about who you're supposed to care about and in what order of priority, but with that more somatic experiential empathy, the rules of who does and doesn't count and who is and isn't important don't really apply because you're getting what you're feeling from the presences around you. And so at a very early age, I was picking up, uh, growing up and was born in 74, so growing up in the late 70s and early 80s, I was picking up so much of what was happening around me. I picked up on the background dread of the nuclear threat, and that was something that was omnipresent for me from probably the age of five or six that I wasn't able to put aside in the same way that other people could. I also felt very much, and it's very common among autistic people for us to feel an empathy for because we don't follow the categories of who does and doesn't deserve empathy, we will feel a visceral empathy with plants and animals and even objects people tend to think of as inanimate. There's a kind of inherent animism to that way of feeling. And I became very conscious of the declining forest in my suburban Massachusetts community. And when I first became aware of species moving toward extinction, watching nature documentary when I was five, I wept for days and wrote poetry about the disappearance of the osprey. And so that had a big formative effect on me, as did my sense that none of the way that the culture around me was unfolding actually made sense to me, and that so much of the way the culture around me was unfolding had links I could intuitively make to the destruction that I was witnessing. And so I was drawn to 
connection with an imagination with other worlds from an early age. And as I came more into trying to figure out my place in the world, channeled that into activism until I reached the point where, through the means the culture had available, I felt like I had tried everything and couldn't imagine how to shift what was happening in the world. And that was when I prayed for my heart to be broken open. And the plants ended up being what came through the cracks that I prayed for. And how did that happen? How how were you introduced or how did you discover the plant world and connect with it and discover that whole world of of herbal magic and herbal healing? So I went on an emergency human rights delegation to Oaxaca in southern Mexico in the wake of a powerful popular uprising there that started with the teacher strike and which was being really brutally put down by militarized police. And so we were meeting with people who were hiding in church basements and gathering. we were gathering their stories of what they were experiencing. And then we also went up into the hills, into some villages that had managed to hold off from being occupied. And what I was struck by was when we would ask people about what the source of their resistance was and what was nourishing their spirits, they would talk about their ancestral connection to the land and to the corn. And they would talk about how the genetically modified corn that had been sent from the U.S. was threatening the ancient varieties that they had grown but that the elders, when they went out and walked in the fields, could recognize which plants belonged and which plants didn't, just as they were sprouting, and pull up the genetically modified ones. And I remember having two sets of responses that my sort of cynical, rationalist mind said, oh, what a beautiful story, I wish that were true. But something deeper in me knew that that was true, and that that was a way of knowing that was inherent to people, but that enculturation had separated me from. Yet I also had the strong sense that I had believed that I was going there to help, but that really I was going there seeking hope and meaning, and I needed to find hope and meaning in the land where I lived. And I came back, it was December, and I was at a gathering in Boston where I felt really, really out of place and where I was processing so much of what I just witnessed in Oaxaca. And there was one person in the room who seemed to have a really different way of being. And when we spoke, she told me that she was an herbalist and that she was learning to listen to the voices of plants. And suddenly I recognized that same way of engaging the world as alive that fit intellectual ideas I had, but which I hadn't really allowed myself to experience viscerally for a long, long time. And I left with a seed beginning to stir in my heart. And then on New Year's Eve, I was back up in Maine, and the herbalist called me out of the blue 
and I had been really, really sick. I developed bronchitis that proceeded to pneumonia, which was not uncommon for me. I grew up with really severe asthma, and I also grew up with the sense that my body was broken and there was nothing I could do for it. And so I had become increasingly alienated from my body and my physical health had declined more and more. And the lungs are also, in many, many traditions, a place in our bodies that hold grief. And mine were full of this thick, watery grief. And when we got off the phone, that herbalist called back a few minutes later and she said, you know, I kept thinking about what I was hearing in your breathing on the phone. And there's a plant who would like to help you. And she has a bright yellow flower and a deep resinous root. And her name is Ella Campaign, and she helps to clear what we carry in our lungs. And I went out to the local health food store and bought my very first ounce of Ella Campaign tincture. And when I took the first few drops, not only did I feel the patterns of my breath begin to change faster than any pharmacological action could explain, but I felt the unraveling of that story that my body was broken and couldn't be healed. And even though I was still sick, I went out for a snowy walk in the woods with my dog and breathing in the scents of the cedar and the spruce and the pine, I felt myself open more and more deeply and I felt myself begin to come into my body more. And in the weeks and months that followed, as I continued working with the plant, I had more and more access to my breath which is so much the thread that connects us with the world. And in many ways, my body had replicated the patterns of struggling to breathe, in part because I felt ambivalent about being in the world. And the more that breath came in, the more I came into myself, and my body began asking to be fed differently. So I began eating differently, and I began moving differently, lifting weights and swimming and walking in the woods became more and more things that my body was called to, and the transformation began. So leading into your healing practice, I would love for you to talk about the seven principles that underlie your practice, and we can go through them however you like our bodies and the body of the world are these complex dynamic systems that flow and respond and work according to their own inherent logic, their own desire to keep unfolding according to their own nature. And when we are in connection with each other and with the world and we are able to feel that kind of deep support from life itself, we respond fluidly to situations. And so we are some five centuries into a mechanistic worldview, which tried to separate our understanding of the world from our life in it, and which seeks to believe that everything could be mapped by rational linear processes very much the way that the beginnings of the emergence of industrialism focused on the machine, so too 
it began to view bodies as machines that would break down in predictable ways and be changed and be healed by predictable interventions, and which sought to impose a similar kind of map on the world, which arose out of a collective trauma of people in Europe being forcibly separated from the land by the privatization of the land, really beginning with the enclosure movement in England, where people had been farming land collectively in the same place for generation after generation. And when suddenly the influx of new money into the European markets from first the Spanish looting of gold in the Americas began flooding English coffers with new money as the Spanish crown paid off its debt to England and those who had been involved in finance suddenly had access to new money and wanted access to new land. That access to new land was created in two ways. One was by breaking up the lands that people had farmed in common and dividing them into individual plots that people couldn't afford to maintain and then driving them off for failure to pay their debts to create new estates for the new wealthy. And at the same time, the beginning of the expansion of the forcible colonization of the Americas and the genocide that entailed and the kidnapping of people from Africa to be the enslaved workforce of that new land. And so... In order to achieve that, it was necessary, first of all, to dehumanize the people who were being colonized and the people who were being enslaved, but secondly, to really break those connections that people had with the land, which required also breaking their connections with themselves, which happened through the trauma of forced relocation. And Sylvia Federici, of course, speaks of this brilliantly in great depth in her book, Caliban and the Witch, which talks about the ways in which the body and the land became commodified and it had this new discipline of first commodification and then being viewed in a mechanistic way imposed on them. And bodies essentially became tools for producing capital and medicine became about how do we keep these machines for producing capital working. But eventually that mechanistic worldview that sought to look at the world as though a machine broke down as observation and mathematical modeling revealed that actually the world is full of complex self-regulating feedback loops and operates with what we would describe as consciousness and intention, and so do our bodies. And so our bodies are constantly trying to move toward achieving balance based on the information and resources they have. And so in order to change what's happening in those systems, we need to change the information available to the system. And the same is true of larger collectives of organisms, whether they be a human community or an ecological community. And you also talk about how our healing or medical approach actually kind of defines 
who and what we are and our function and place in the world in very much the same sort of way that Silvia Federici talks about the commodification of the land and humanity. Right. Because we are, by our nature, beings who make fluid, subtle shifts according to what's happening within us and around us. And when our bodies are responding in ways that we identify and experience as disease, often, especially in chronic situations, often what's happening is that we are trying to respond to something that's wrong in our world, and we're trying to respond in a way that is biologically coherent in response to that. And our conventional medicine tends to respond to that by trying to figure out the problem from a mechanical standpoint. So we can think, for example, of high blood pressure, medically called hypertension, which refers to the fact that this actually is a constriction of blood flow in the body that causes pressure to build. And whenever we're constricting, it's because we are trying to stop the overwhelm of internal and external information to some degree by cutting off blood flow and cutting off awareness. But also, our bodies are trying to tense up to be ready to spring into action in response to immediate threat. And so, fundamentally, hypertension arises from feeling unsafe and disconnected in the world. But medically, we respond to it by trying to look at it as though it's a problem within a machine. So we say, okay, too much pressure in the blood, let's drain fluid. So first they'll give a diuretic, and that will lower the blood pressure for a little while. But then if the situation remains unresolved, the body will say, hey, wait a second, I was spiking my blood pressure for a reason, and now it's harder for me to do because the fluid is draining out. And so the body will then start trying to do that by other means, for example, by upregulating angiotensin 2, which creates tension and inflammation within the blood vessels directly. And so medicine will give angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor to try to bring down those levels of angiotensin 2, and that will work for a little while, but if the underlying issue is unresolved, the blood pressure will find its way up again, and we'll begin giving a beta blocker to block some of the receptors for norepinephrine, one of our stress hormones and so on. There's the continued escalation from the same sort of logic as an arms race. And those medicines can have their place. They can be life-saving at certain moments in my life. They have been because they buy time for resolution. But if you're not trying to understand what the body's trying to do and why, and you're not trying to change the context of that body response, then the underlying issue will never be resolved. And so a medicine that recognizes the body is alive, recognizes that the body is trying to move through particular responses and tries to either allow those responses to come to a different kind of completion or change the information that the body has about the situation that it's in. I found all of that 
so fascinating how that works and the way you explained how we experience life in the way that we feel life. And it essentially boils down to what it feels like to be oneself in the world, in the moment, and that our body interprets that and then acts upon that feeling. And often, because of the crazy, unbalanced nature of the world, our body responds in ways that may appear to be dysfunctional or maladaptive in terms of our overall well-being, but it's actually a very natural response to the circumstances that it feels that it's in. Absolutely. And I'm really grateful, on the one hand, that we have a system of medicine that has gotten very good at changing acute responses in the moment because, yes, sometimes that buys the time that's needed for the body to heal. But actual healing can only occur through reorientation. Yes. And also, your second principle is the connection between the individual, community, cultural, and ecological well-being and how they're all deeply intertwined and, and inseparable. Could you talk more about that? Absolutely. So we tend to have this bounded sense of ourselves as individuals, which is part of what arose from that cultural trauma of forced separation from each other and from the land. But in reality, in every moment, we are inhaling each other's exhalations and the exhalations of trees, which are also breathing us in. We are drinking water that carries what has poured out of the bodies of living things in both helpful and harmful ways. So we tend to have some growing awareness of the harmful ways of how for example, the medications we excrete make their way into the waters and we drink them back in whether we need them or not. But there's also the beautiful way in which the roots of trees and the mycelia fungi are releasing compounds into the soil of the water filters through in every moment. And those find their way into us as well. And so the air and the water and the soil all shape our existence through the way that we take them back into our bodies. And we have the subtle signals, our pheromones, and the aromatic compounds of plants carrying information through the air. And our bodies are tuned to respond to those subtle signals. And because we recognize that when we are able to breathe in the exhalations of plants, our bodies immediately recognize ourselves as being invited back into connection. But, you know, Alan Watts spoke of the way our culture defines the person as the skin-encapsulated ego, and it's not that the being that appears to begin and end at our skin isn't real, but that is just one layer of being. If even if we try to define what my individual body is, there are more bacterial and viral and fungal cells making up 
molecules that make up my body are changing all the time through what I inhale and exhale, through what I drink in and eat in and what I excrete, through the falling away of cells of skin and cells of hair. There's this constant recycling of matter that still keeps reorganizing according to this pattern that is a collective pattern that I call me. And in the same way that the bacteria and fungi living in my gut are a community of beings made up of individuals who then become this local microclimate that's part of this larger climate that we call a person. In the same way, I am part of a collective ecology that all have animating intelligences and animating spirits of their own. We know that groups have a different collective psychology than individuals, but we also know that we cannot separate these bodies, which are communities of organisms, from communities of organisms that they are within, that what happens to the soil microbes in my community, what happens to the microbes within the water in my community, is deeply interconnected with what happens with the microbes in my own body. And so we are, at any level that we look at life, we are looking at nesting levels of communities within communities. Even if we go down to the cellular level, the mitochondria that are the energy engines of the cell, were once independent organisms. And I find it really interesting that the person who discovered that the mitochondria were independent organisms that found how to function in new ways in the community of the cell. The fact that this was discovered by Lynn Margulis, who was also one of the first people to articulate the Gaia hypothesis that recognizes that the world itself is one living organism, speaks to the connectedness of those truths in some important ways. And we're also, in the same way, we're also connected to what you refer to as the other world. Yes. And I would love for you to connect to that, how that is part of this inseparable interconnectivity of everything and bring in that quote-unquote other world that our culture is pretty much ignorant of, if not in denial of. Yeah, we live in a culture that creates dualities, and one of those deepest dualities is this idea of mind and spirit being different realms. If there is anything divine, lives somewhere else, and that this material world and the world that we speak of when we call spirit are somehow distinct. And that is a very recent concept. Recent enough, the Irish journalist, Moncon Magan, who wrote a beautiful book called 32 Words for Field, and part of what his book is about is about the way in which the last people who grew up with particular rural lifeways in Ireland are aging and dying, and parts of and senses of the language are being lost. And one of the ones that he speaks of is that there are two words for place in Irish. 
one is alter and the other is counter. And they speak of place in the conventional sense and of other world, which is, in their topographies, placed upon each other. They are thin boundaries of perception. One can cross between counter and alter within the same field by walking across the same field to awareness and focus changing. Robin Artisan, who's a sorcerer and spiritual ecologist living on the coast of Maine, speaks of the other world as an interior dimension to our reality that is a level and layer of being which we come in and out of awareness of. And when we're in engagement with it, we're more in touch with the life of all things. And when the two worlds are together, the living and the dead of both worlds, the human and other than human living and dead of both worlds are coexisting. And we are operating with a broader sense of the life and sacredness of everything. And we are able to be in conversation across time and space with the different ways that life has expressed itself. We tap into our evolutionary kinship with all things. We tap into the visceral sense of ancestral memory held within our bodies and held within the body of the land of other ways of being and seeing that have existed. And what we tend in this culture to think of as the spiritual or the aesthetic and separate off into special places that we connect with when we have time and space become instead a part of the fundamental fabric of reality and every decision that we're making. And I would really love for you to talk about how you bring that into your healing practice and how it informs the way you work with people and work with the herbs. I bring it into my healing practice primarily through recognizing healing as a weaving of kinship between and among beings by inviting people to, as they take in the medicine from a body of a plant, often one drop of a tincture at a time, to notice the subtle shifts in sensation and perception and emotion they experience and recognize those as the presence of something else that's intelligent and alive engaging in conversation with their being. And through inviting people also into connection with ancestors who lived in very different ways and have an important knowledge of our inheritance of ancestral pain and ancestral trauma through the ways that things become culturally transmitted in the ways we carry ourselves and the ways we speak and the ways we interact from generation to generation, but also through actual genetic changes and changes in genetic expression that then get passed on through DNA from generation to generation, 
But if we pass down the pain, we also pass down the resilience and the responsiveness and the memory of how to live in the world. And we can awaken that in sensory ways as well with language, with music, with food that connects us with the people who came before us who were living in ways that were more engaged with the life of the world. And so I invite people to reach for those healthy ancestral connections by even just again withholding that intention to ask those who came before to remind us how to live now through engaging music and language and story and food of ancestral cultures, we can sometimes bring somatic cues that bring other possibilities of ways of being into our awareness. In some ways, I can kind of see how the world itself is doing that right now, that as we experience horrible things like drought and melting glaciers, those things are peeling back layers that obscure what came before, and we are getting more and more archaeological information about fundamentally different ways that humans lived before and outside this culture. And sometimes it feels to me almost as if those ancestors who lived in a different relationship with the land are saying, okay, now, the way you're living has brought you to this place. Let's show you something else. Let's show you what came before. How does poetry fit into all of this for you? And perhaps after you talked about that, we could have you read a poem Perhaps the one on page 109. Absolutely. So I work with an understanding of the structure of the self that was passed down to me by my teacher, Cornelia Benavides, from her teacher, Victor Anderson, which appears in many different forms, in many different cultures, which says that we have a threefold structure of the self. There are three aspects of our being, and the one that we are most familiar with in this culture is the human self that exists in the world of language and abstraction, and that tries to make maps of how we think things work and respond according to the rules that those maps dictate and are shaped by. Same rules shape and are shaped by those maps, those received human understanding. But beneath that is the wild self, the part of us that lives in the world of emotion and sensation and that knows that we are animal and that seeks to express that animal being, that animal self, and connect with the living world. And then there is the God self or the divine self that knows its own infinity that knows its connection with all things, which the animal self can recognize in the way it feels when it encounters and connects with that presence of the infinite. But the human self can't contain. It would shatter the human self's understanding. But where the human self and the wild self meet, when all of those selves are in alignment, the wild self is moving with the divine self, and the human self 
in trying to trace and remember and express that, create art and poetry and music. And through that, we can get to a closer understanding, a closer encounter with the wild and the divine by changing the resistance of the human self to it. Uh, as a culture, we tend to have this idea there's one single literal reality, but we call the literal is actually just one map. It's actually just a single colonial metaphor that tries to block out other metaphors. And metaphor is actually the language of trying to translate things into expressions and understandings that evoke particular sensory response. And so through metaphor and rhythm and movement of language, poetry allows us to come into that wilder and deeper understanding. And so uh, to preface the poem, I'll say that Victor Anderson would often invoke an old saying that shows up in both Welsh and Irish tradition that when you encounter the other world, you'll be rendered mad, dead, or a poet. And I've often thought of poetry as the way that we resolve and balance the madness so we aren't killed in the process. And in the Irish tradition, one of the ones who can convey that ability to see and understand differently and whose presence will either drive us mad or bring us into poetry. As one of the oldest gods, Mananon Maclear, uh, the son of the sea, who carries a blossoming silver branch from an apple tree in the other world. And when you hold it, you can see the world as he does, which he, when he looks out on the sea, sees it as though it's a plain of wildflowers, and he can look down beneath the world to see the well and the other world that all waters come from, and the salmon, the oldest creature who holds the wisdom of all worlds, who sleeps there. And so this poem evokes that silver branch and that connection with the other world. Mad, dead, or a poet was never really a choice. Once you fell the silver branch and gazed into the abyss that lies beneath the dark waters of the well that feeds the rivers of the senses and the rivers of the world, you will always carry the scent of the other world, the obsidian shimmer of Duende's baptism in dark water. Only poetry can resolve the torrents into madness. Only poetry can shape the breath to feed the fire that feeds the forge of the heart that shapes the spirit like molten iron, like the molten iron that rises up from the heart of the earth and sets ablaze the fire at your root and the fire in your blood and the fire in your head that blazes in your eyes that shine like the midsummer bonfire and pours forth from the tongue in words that bless and words that curse and words that command roots to break through sidewalks in forests to rise where cities now stand, but like the wind in the desert, Ezekiel knew, commands the dry bones to live. The fires of a burning world have leapt into my head and find their match in the scarlet leaves reflected in the water and the red light of Mars in the sky. In times like this, my ancestors donned feather cloaks 
and went alone into the forest and ate autumn's strange underworld fruit that bloomed forth after the rains, spread across the ground like hazelnuts, holding the memory of the forest infused into the topsoil and gazed into the waters until the fire cooled enough for the visions to condense and rain down as words sweep enough upon the tongue to soothe the way truth burns and return to the people hoping to conjure in their hearts the rhythm and in their breasts the song that would make the wasteland bloom. Thank you. That was really beautiful and ties so much of this together. Here's a quote in the book. You say, All medicine and magic are rooted in cosmologies, stories about the nature of the world that are held and known at a deeper level than beliefs, and that this deeper knowing shapes the intentions with which we relate in the world, often in invisible ways. I would love for you to talk about how that deeper knowing clashes within us with our cultural beliefs that also exist inside of us, and how you work with these internal clashing worldviews in yourself and also with the people that you work with. Belief is an interesting thing. We think of it as so fundamental to our lives, but really, in human history, the emphasis on belief was a pretty recent thing. Probably wasn't really until the Christian Church tried to wipe out heresy by the Council of Nicaea and the idea of what you had to believe in order to be a Christian that the question became important. Terry Pratchett, in one of his novels, says, Witches don't believe in gods. They encounter them far too often. It'd be rather like believing in the postman. And when you're living in a world that's integrated, where this world and the other world are, John Moriarty said, part of the same great world, belief isn't a central question. But because you simply interact with what is as it shows up. But, yeah, we're a long way in this culture down the road of making beliefs central, which is creating rigid structures of thought that then actually begin to filter how we prioritize sensation. So we have the saying in our culture, seeing is believing, but in reality, believing is also seeing, because if we were to think about the amount of light pouring into our eyes in any given moment, if we were to try to process the information of that light that poured in even a second, we would spend a lifetime doing so. So we filter it out, and we prioritize things according to what we do and don't think is real, and we make decisions accordingly, and we try to fit our experience to what we already think is true. And over time, if we tell our bodies that enough, if we reward our bodies for conforming with that view and punish our bodies for breaking from that view, we will begin also 
experiencing that at more of an emotional and sensory level. But when we allow ourselves to actually encounter unguarded the life in and of the world and feel and experience the presence of life around us, that begins to unravel and change and we begin to experience really different possibilities of ways of living. And so when we're working at the structure of belief, we have to be very gentle. Beliefs are rigid and sometimes pushing against them we find resistance and can't get past them. Sometimes pushing against them we have them suddenly break and that sudden break can create crisis. And so we need to to some extent, meet people where they are by understanding the story of the world that they live within. And if we recognize that the literal is just one colonial metaphor, then we can visit and engage the metaphor someone is living within and have a conversation within that framework of belief that they have that then begins to open up more possibility and more fluidity in those structures. And so, for example, if we know because we believe that what we experience at a sensory level is real, if we can invite people to experience new sensory information and map the meaning of it in a somewhat new way, then we can allow some fluidity to begin to enter the landscape of the human self that will allow that structure of belief to slowly morph and shapeshift and change. And so somebody might come to me believing that a single drop of a tincture of a plant can't change anything. And then if sitting with them, I say, okay, well, try this out. Just take this drop of this plant and be quiet for a moment and pay attention to the sensations that you feel and anything that feels different. And often I'll find that at first there'll be some pushback that people will say, well, I don't know, this probably isn't real, couldn't possibly be but you know, I guess, yeah, all that I felt was that uh, my thoughts were a little bit clearer and it was easier to give them words and my head felt like it had more room in it. I'll say, oh, well, that's interesting because the plant that I gave you is a plant called Calamus and in Sanskrit its name is Vaka, which means voice. And one of the things that it does is it helps to uncloud our senses and make our expression clearer and make it easier for us to give words to our experience. And once people have that affirmation that, oh, wait a second, actually what I was picking up at a sensory level is real, then the structure of belief 
shifts just a little bit to begin to accommodate that, and there becomes more room for the medicine to move. And looking at the structure of belief, we also can find the structure of stories. What are the stories about the person and about the world that are guiding the person? And if we can tell a story of possible change that fits within that story and bring the plant that can actually affect the change in that direction, then we can get multiple layers of the self collaborating and shifting the embodied experience. And the embodied experience begins to shift the view of the world. Victor Anderson had a saying that was his guideline, which was first perceive, then believe. And the more we can invite people into perception and experience, the more belief can become less rigid and our bodies and ourselves can begin rewriting our stories. John Moriarty would speak of how we are dreamed into being by the world and allowing the world to dream us into being in new ways becomes possible then and there. Wow, that was so beautiful. I love that. And you say the world is alive and always talking with us. So we're in this like continual dynamic conversation with the world around us. And you brought in the element of how we're dreaming each other in that relationship in a way. And I would love for you to also give some other examples of how herbal tinctures can have those kind of integrative and dissolving effects, like dissolving obstacles and old belief structures within us. Absolutely. So, so many of those belief structures are actually held in the way that we physically hold ourselves and in our patterns of tension. Wilhelm Reich, who was a brilliant psychologist and philosopher and social thinker, who was one of the first people to really observed the emergence of fascism in Europe. And he suffered in ways that people often suffer when they see things before others do. He first had to flee Austria and Germany to flee fascism. Then when he was involved in the Communist Party in Norway, he got kicked out of the party for being too anti-fascist and then had to flee just as the Nazis were coming into Scandinavia, he had to flee to the U.S. and ended up dying in prison in the United States for refusing to comply with an order from the Food and Drug Administration to destroy his own books, which ended up being burned in the largest book burning in U.S. history. But Dr. Reich saw that Fascism, in many ways, was an expression of the ways in which we armor ourselves, the ways in which we hold tension within our bodies to block out both that life force that wants to move through us and creative expression, to lock that in, but also to lock out the feeling of others. 
to lock out the experience of others' joy and suffering, and that the more we are disconnected from that felt sense of reality, the easier it is for us to accept brutal ideas that try to impose rigidity onto the world. And it's interesting is when we think about the ways in which we hold tension in our bodies that's expressed first through the muscles and then through the fascia. The fascia end up holding on to the memory of how we have held muscular tension. And when we have tension in the fascia, it becomes habits of holding and habits of perception. That So ultimately, we can see fascia as a disease of the fascia. That's so fascinating, and I think probably a lot of people don't really know what fascia is. An excellent point. And so, yeah, fascia is all of the soft tissue within our bodies. We have our superficial fascia, which is our subcutaneous fat, which is a fluid medium that conducts electromagnetic signals and chemical signals through our bodies, and which also contains these collagen bundles that give it structure, which are actually built like fiber optic cables and carry photons. They carry light signals within our body. And then we have the deeper fascia, which is our tendons and ligaments that we refer to as connective tissues. So these are the tissues all around our musculature that are part of facilitating movement, but also an important sensing and signaling system throughout our bodies. And so when it comes to working with plants, so many of the plants that I work with end up dealing either with constriction in the musculature or constriction in the fascia. So lobelia is a very, very acrid plant that the second you taste it creates this sensation in the back of your throat that stimulates the vagus nerve, which is the nerve that connects our major centers of neurological function, the brain, the heart, the gut, and the pelvis. And it creates a strong signal across those that puts them into clearer communication with each other that then moves us instantly out of the sympathetic nervous state, which is the nervous state that tells us that we're in danger and need to create tension, and invites an immediate relaxation of muscular tension throughout the body. And then there are downstream pharmacological effects that reinforce that, but there is a instant release that comes with that stimulation of the acrid taste receptor. Some of our really sweet and moistening plants like Solomon seal and Shatavari, which is a species of asparagus used in Ayurvedic medicine, invite us to become juicier beings to bring forth new secretions. And in doing that, they bring new secretion of the synovial fluid that lubricates our fascia, which reduces the rigidity within our bodies and lets us feel and flow differently. We are attuned to 
the aromatic sense of plants. And so when we breathe in the exhalation of a plant or when we taste the tinctured aromatic compounds of a plant, we suddenly receive information that something is trying to connect with us. And so in response, our heart rhythm shifts. And in response to the shift of our heart rhythm, we begin to release tension and we begin to allow that information to come in from the world in new ways. And so all of these things are possible with introducing really, really minute bits of the presence of plants. Our nervous systems and endocrine system evolved in constant conversation with plants. Every breath our ancestors took in is filled with the exhalation of plants. And everything they exhaled, the plants breathed back in and changed their chemistry in response. Every sip of water they took was infused with the molecules released by roots and mycelia. Every time they brushed against the plant, some of it passed through their skin. And so there would be all these really subtle phytochemical inputs. And so we're attuned to those subtle inputs. And we can experience those by taking ourselves to the forest. But when we can't come to the forest, we can bring the forest to us by bringing this preserved presence of a plant. And that subtle molecular information, that subtle sensory information, is information our bodies are attuned to that begins to tell us that another being is showing us another way of being. Mm, Again, so beautifully said. Near the end of the book, you talk about how the forests are burning all over the planet. And I'm curious if you sense a correlation between this epidemic of burning forests and this pandemic that attacks the respiratory system. Absolutely. And we can look at the origins of the pandemic, of how COVID entered into the global human population and Yeah, and right now we're in the moment of all this political debate about whether or not somebody dropped a test tube in a lab. That's useful information in terms of what safety protocols are going to be for studying disease in the future. But in many ways, it's irrelevant to what actually happened. It may have sped things up, but ultimately we have novel pathogens entering into human populations as we push further and further into the formerly wild places where they lived in animal bodies that had learned in some ways to adapt to their presence, and humans apart from them didn't adapt to them. So we have habitat loss bringing populations of people who are more vulnerable to disease often because they're poor and hungry into contact with these organisms. And then we have a global economic system, the very same global economic and supply system that's driving global deforestation that provides a really rapid vector of transmission. And we also have 
the impairment of our underlying respiratory and cardiovascular health as a result of the loss of forests, both in terms of their capacity to regulate carbon in the atmosphere, their capacity to clean and transmute the air on our behalf, and in terms of their ability to bring us back to ourselves and to release tension and bring down inflammation within our bodies. It's interesting that so many of the things that make us more predisposed to COVID infection and to COVID infection being more severe have to do with underlying inflammation and tension, which then makes a virus that attacks the angiotensin renin system within our bodies that regulates tension and inflammation in the blood vessels that much more dangerous. And uh, one of the things that can most help us to counterbalance those impacts of civilization on our bodies is spending time mindfully walking in a forest and breathing in the exhalations of trees. So there is absolutely a connection between the loss of the lungs of the planets and this fiery disease that attacks the blood vessels within our lungs. And unless we begin shifting our relationships with the living world, we are going to, well, one way or another, we're moving into an age where this pandemic is likely to be the first of many. If we can begin shifting the ways we approach bodies, shifting the ways we approach healing, and shifting the ways we live in the world, hopefully some of those future pandemics can take a smaller toll than this one has. But ultimately, yeah, a dysregulation of the living system of the world through an attack on its respiratory system led to a chain of events that brought a new pathogen into the human world that attacked human respiratory systems. Mm. And finally, you say that healing is about bringing people back to a state of joyful embodiment. Talk about experiencing joyful embodiment while the forests are burning and while we're facing climate breakdown and the sixth major extinction of life on the earth and possibly our own. And now, in addition, a year and a half of isolation and lack of healing contact that most of us have been experiencing during this pandemic and how you work with that and, and heal that and, and help get back to a state of joyful embodiment. Hmm. Question. So a fundamental part of it is recognizing that thinking we know what's happening, thinking we know how things work, thinking we know how to exert control in the world is what brought us to this place. So letting go of that certainty, 
letting go of belief structure, letting go of that certainty, letting go of thinking that we already know how the story ends becomes essential. And for me, one of the best ways of doing that is by engaging and connecting with the life around us. And so I am very fortunate to live on a cove of a beautiful mountain lake where I can step out and hear the call of the loons, and that becomes a reminder for me to come back to my felt sense of being in a body in the world and perceiving that beauty. But wherever you are, there is something outside human control that's finding its own beautiful and authentic expression. And so I find that no matter who I talk with, almost everyone has at some point in their life felt an affinity for a tree. And so I will invite people to walk around their neighborhood and find a single tree if they can. If you can't find a single tree, well, then maybe you find a single weed growing in a vacant lot. But find a being. But most often I find that almost everyone can, somewhere that they go each day, find one tree and find the one tree that really speaks to them. And I'll tell people, just spend five minutes with that tree every day paying attention to its presence. And that paying attention to its presence begins to really shift awareness for people, engaging in that actual direct relationship with something that's alive and that isn't human begins to open different realms of experience and possibilities. And the truth is that we don't know what will happen next. We have our models, and those models do show if everything unfolds predictably and we keep doing what we're doing, what will happen next. But the living world also continuously surprises us. We can think about the fact that after humans flood the area around Chernobyl, birch forests began regrowing in places that have been towns, and deer and wolf began moving back into those forests. And somehow... That ecosystem is living and coming back to life, even while transmuting the seemingly untransmutable poison of the radiation of a nuclear meltdown. And so letting go of thinking that we know what happens next and showing up with reverence and openness to the beauty of life around us, very worst-case scenario... We live lives with more beauty, but I think that's distinctly possible that possibilities we couldn't imagine within the belief structures that we've held can begin to unfold, and I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in the life of the world. Mm. Again, so beautifully said. This has been such a juicy and delicious conversation Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been such a beautiful experience for me, and 
wonderful connecting with you and, and so grateful for all you're doing to help shift culture and shift people's sense of possibility. And I loved the way you tuned in to everything I wanted to bring out in this conversation that I didn't even need to ask. I'm so glad. Co-creation is such a beautiful process. It's at the heart of everything. It is indeed. And maybe we could end by you reading the poem on page 168? Yes. In fact, I have the book open to it. <laughs> Perfect. The mountain is wreathed by the smoke of burning forests, and across the ocean, pilots prepare to set cities aflame. But in the same world, bears crash through thickets of huckleberries. Salmon prepare for their journey back to the streams where they were born. In autumn, bears drag the carcasses of salmon into the forest, where they rot into the topsoil and are reborn as cedar and trillium and wild ginger. Long ago, someone wrote, empires rise and fall, but the mountains and rivers remain. It's only because we have forgotten that we are dancing mountains and flowing rivers that we think that this world might end. I love that. And maybe you could just briefly talk a bit about that metaphor of flowing mountains or dancing mountains and flowing rivers, particularly that flowing mountain metaphor, where that came from. It comes from the medieval Zen poet Dogen and his Mountains and Rivers Sutra, which includes the line, if you doubt the Blue Mountains constantly walking, you doubt your own walking. And he spoke of the fact that mountains are slowly moving rivers of stone and rivers are swiftly moving mountains of water. And it speaks to me of the fluidity of all things and of the way that when we dissolve the categories of what we think things are and of what we think is possible, that flow reveals itself and we see both the unity of all things and the infinity of expression of that flow. Hmm. Again, I want to thank you so much. This has been fabulous. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed speaking with you so much. And hope you have a beautiful day. And you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Sean Parg O'Donohue is a somatic animist herbalist, poet, witch, and author of this wonderful new book, The Forest Reminds Us of Who We Are connecting to the living medicine of wild plants.
behind the deers in the wood of Halleg. The window is nailed and boarded through which I saw the west, and my love is at the burn of Halleg, a birch tree, and she has always been between Inver and Milk Hollow, here and there about Ballachorn. She is a birch, a hazel, a straight, slender young rowan. In Scrapital of my people, where Norman and Big Hector were, their daughters and their sons are a wood going up beside the stream. up by the cairn until the whole ridge from Benelique will be under its shade. If it does not, I will go down to Halleck to the Sabbath of the dead where the people are frequenting every single generation gone. under my old moss and the girls in silent bands go to Clachan as in the beginning and return from Clachan from Sejnish and the land of the living each one young and light stepping without the heartbreak of the tale it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time take good care of yourselves and each other